Olivia with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi and welcome to the RoboHub podcast. In today's episode, we'll be hearing more about how one company is trying to support warehouse workers and speed up deliveries of goods. In a world where consumers expect seamless, fast home delivery, where you order something online and expect it on your doorstep the next or even the same day, quick order fulfillment is crucial. Invia Robotics has developed a warehouse automation solution designed to eliminate the need for human workers to find and pick products individually. The company's mission is to help workers package diverse sets of products quickly and efficiently. Our interviewer Lauren spoke with Dr. Rand Forhees, co-founder and CTO of Envia Robotics. He leads the engineering team that develops the software for their systems of autonomous mobile warehouse robots. They talked about Envia's robots, how they pick and deliver boxes or totes of products to and from human workers, and how their activities are optimized. Hello, welcome to RoboHub. May I ask you to introduce yourself? Sure, my name is Rand Boris. I'm the CTO of Envia Robotics. Can you tell me a little bit about what Envia does? Sure, yeah, so Envia does uh, warehouse automation. So kind of the story here is that a number of years ago, uh, my co-founders and I were trying to figure out what we wanted to do. We knew we wanted to start a robotics company. We all came out of a great robotics lab at USC, and we knew we wanted to build a robotics company. And so we were kind of looking around at the markets, trying to figure out what, where, where is there a good market in robotics? And so our thoughts initially went to, okay, let's try to, let's try to help people. And so we started looking at the elder care market. And we had read this one statistic that in Japan, adult diapers were beginning to outsell infant diapers. It's like, wow. wow. There's going to be a huge market for this. There's going to be a lot of people who need a lot of care. Let's see if we can solve this with robotics. So we started putting together some prototypes, started putting together some designs. And as we were doing all of this, we were ordering all of our parts on Amazon. And I think the most striking thing that happened is we needed a four-foot by six-foot piece of aluminum. And we ordered this on Amazon, and it came next day, free shipping. What in the world is going on here? How is this possible? And so we started looking at the logistics market and started really looking at the numbers. And at the time, Amazon was really supporting a lot of their business with some of their online web stuff, AWS and, and everything. But a lot of people were having a lot of trouble with what is now the monster of e-commerce. And we started looking and looking and looking and researching and the the assistive living market didn't work out for a number of reasons, which we can talk about later, but we realized that there was just a huge opportunity in logistics and e-commerce in particular. And really what's been going on is that in the old days, what you would have is distribution centers where, you know, Walmart or Target or whoever has a huge distribution center where what they're doing is they're stocking their stores. And so you would have a person with a forklift certification moving maybe $50,000 of product across the warehouse on a pallet in one trip. And what's happening now is 
instead of shipping a pallet of toothpaste or whatever, they're shipping one tube of toothpaste with one tube of chapstick and one pair of sunglasses. And so the access pattern for goods in a warehouse is becoming just brutal. And so before where one person was making one trip across the warehouse with, you know, $50,000 of product on a single pallet, now that person is having to random access all of the product in that warehouse and it's really, really inefficient. And so there's been a lot done with queuing theory and, you know, traveling salesman approximations and all this kind of thing to try to get those people's what's called the pick path, basically their, uh, their, their travel path through the warehouse as efficient as possible. But at the end of the day, still a typical warehouse worker will walk 10, 15 miles just around and around and around that warehouse, just pushing a cart around. And it's a very, very difficult job. So we figured that one of the, one of the problems with uh, the assisted living market is that human eyes and hands and frontal lobes are very difficult to replicate with robots right now. You know, the, the perception and the manipulation that's required to do things inside of a house is very, a very, very tough problem. It's absolutely possible, but it's not right now really possible to do it and make economic sense. And that's one of the things that we really wanted to do was have a business that wasn't just making cool videos or, you know, toys or novelties. We wanted to make something that was using robots and customers would look at us and not, not really care that we were using robots or whatever the technology was and just be able to say, you guys are able to do it more cost effectively than I can do it any other way. And so when it comes down to it, feet aren't that efficient, but wheels really are. So we started designing a robot from the ground up that way. Our kind of design principle uh, was to, to make it as brutally simple as possible. So as few degrees of freedom as possible and make it as inaccurately as we could. Because we knew that if, if we could have very few degrees of freedom, the motion control would be very easy, the number of actuators would be low. And if we could make it very inaccurately, then we wouldn't have we wouldn't be bound to some, you know, super high precision manufacturers. We could just kind of farm out all of the fab work to just anybody around us and uh, do the assembly and then fix everything in software. So that's been kind of our mantra so far. So the product that we build is a robot, very, very simple looking robot, nothing fancy, that has two drive wheels, a Z axis and one arm axis with suction cups. And okay. so the robot cruises around the warehouse, we'll find boxes corresponding to orders that have been placed and grab those boxes and bring them up to a pick station where a, a, a person will then use their hands and their eyes and their frontal lobes to identify the objects that need to be grabbed, you know, untangle whatever's in that box, pull the watch, you know, the single watch out from the tangled mess of whatever's in that box and, and send it off uh, for the order. I see. So the robot is not grabbing the individual object from the box. It's grabbing the box, which then the human will take an individual object from at the station. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I see. Uh, and in that way, you're kind of getting around this issue of grasping, which is a huge area of research in itself. Right. It is still very much an area of research. And there's a lot of companies doing a lot of very cool things out there that have grasping solutions. The issue was that we wanted to have a solution that hit the largest part of the market with as little research necessary. And 
really, we, we did time studies and the majority of the time was spent just a person walking from point A to point B. So what we're doing is eliminating that part and using people for what they're really, really, really good at, which is, you know, fine manipulation and uh, identification and defect detection and, and all that. Another kind of interesting thing about the business that we learned very, very early on is that we really can't be just a robotics company. There are just so many cases of companies who tried to make very, very cool robots. And, you know, the, the plan was like, okay, we'll, we'll make a really cool robot. And then that's step one. Step three is uh, an app ecosystem will evolve. And, you know, just like cell phones, right? Just do like the Steve Jobs thing, but for robots. Uh, and then, you know, all of these app developers will come along and make all of these cool apps. And then people will just buy our robots like crazy. It'll be great. But there's never really any step two there. And step two is really the hard part. So what we learned very early on in going around, talking to warehouse managers uh, and talking to business owners is that, you know, roboticists are rare uh, and running a robotic system is hard. So nobody wants to buy robots. What people want to buy is they want to buy a service and they want to focus on their business, e-commerce, you know, selling whatever it is that it is that they sell where they provide market value and they don't want to worry about running a robotic system. So what we've done in, is actually built a very, very vertical solution where we do everything from building the robots, writing all the code for the robots, writing all of the you know, multi-agent coordination systems for the robots. Can all you the way explain up multi-agent coordination? Yeah, so uh, we can talk, maybe dive into some of the tech details of that later. That's one of the, the really fun problems here. But sure. when you have 100 robots uh, running around, uh, how do you make sure that not only are they not run into each other, but also that they're routing around each other in an efficient way? Right. That's one of the very, very difficult problems. So all the way up through doing like inventory control and management and, uh, you know, dealing with inbound goods and inventory tracking and, and labor management, seeing who signed into which fix station and what is their performance, uh, all the way through, you know, reporting tools and all of that stuff. So it's, we've really built a very, very vertical business where robots are kind of at the very, very bottom of the stack and kind of a lightweight warehouse management system is, is all the way at the top mm -hmm. and we do everything in between. So can you tell me a little bit about what happens when the person and the robot are interacting? Does the robot simply bring the box to the table and place it down? Is there some sort of social interaction happening or does the human need to grab it from the box before the robot puts it down and then the robot immediately brings it back? How does the robot know when the human is done Sure. Picking the object from the box. So the robot gets tasked with grabbing that box and then gets told one or more destinations where it needs to bring it. Right. Uh, let's say uh, five different people order the same pair of sunglasses. Right. And they're all in the same box. Uh, ideally, we would try to fulfill as many orders as possible with that one tote pole, with that one box grab. Right. So we have an optimization system that figures out how best to do that. And so once the robot is actually queued up, it goes and grabs the box, brings it to a uh, what we call a pick station. Uh, and at that pick station, we have our own uh, UI that will say robot 72 has just arrived and has sunglasses. 
please pick five of them and put them into order uh, one, order seven, order nine, order 32, and order 78. And then they will have a scan gun, usually like a wrist-mounted, uh, we call them the Spider-Man gun, where they scan the item. If it has a barcode on it, they can scan the, the tote that the robot brought and then scan the destination order totes. And the system knows that once they've scanned the final destination order tote, that the robot can then take off and go. I see. So in addition to programming what the robots should do, you guys also coordinate which orders should be filled at which times to yep. make each box pull more efficient. Yeah, exactly. And so that's a that's kind of a big part of our, our tech stack is, is figuring out how to do that best. Because there's a lot of trade-offs that you can make uh, in terms of do you want to fill these orders very quickly or do we want to try to fulfill them as optimally as possible? So you can kind of trade off latency by saying, hey, these are really high-priority orders. These have to go out now versus throughput by saying we don't really care when these orders go out. Batch them up as densely as you can so that then you can just have a single robot come out and fulfill as many orders as possible. And you'll get the largest throughput by doing that. But you have to pay off for that latency, so it kind of all depends. And does what you guys do, based on reordering which box is filled at which time, does that also impact when the materials are ordered to the factory? Yeah, we haven't done a lot of that integration yet. Typically, that's a larger business decision in terms of the customer figuring out the customer being our customer being the, the business uh, sure. where our system is installed sure. As figuring out idea. trying to figure out those market trends you know do i need to order more of widget a or more of widget b however we can provide a lot of analytics to help them because a lot of times they just don't have a lot of that insight from their uh whatever back-end system they're using so what we can do is provide some very de detailed statistics about Hey, these are the items that were ordered here. Uh, here's when we fulfilled them. Here's where they're placed in your warehouse. By the way, would you mind if we, what we call defrag your warehouse to place some of those hotter items up front or, you know, closer to some of the, you know, high throughput fixations and that kind of thing. So really we try to enable the customer to do what they do best, which is figure out what their customers need and want and just try to enable them to do that as effectively as possible. I see. And so how did you guys make the decision to bring one box at a time to the picker versus if you were to have kind of the shelf move or a series yep. of boxes move towards the person? Yeah, definitely. And there's there's a couple companies out there that do uh, – there's, there's kind of two other strategies uh, from ours. One mm -hmm. is bringing the entire shelf. Right. Uh, and the other is building a mechanism that can grab multiple boxes and kind of stuff them into its chassis. Sure. Uh, so moving the entire shelf uh, has a number of disadvantages. Uh, namely, the shelves are heavy. Uh, and you have to have a fairly large, bulky, robust robot that uses a lot of battery power to move that whole shelf. And also... You know, that shelf is a giant inverted pendulum. So you have some pretty bad acceleration limits uh, in terms of what you can actually do without just tipping the thing over. And we really looked at the access patterns. One of the potential benefits there is that, hey, you can bring the shelf and maybe there's, you know, instead of fulfilling, maybe there's the sunglasses and the uh, sunscreen and the bathing suits and the umbrellas all on the same shelf. Mm -hmm. And we looked at a, a lot of our customers' access patterns and there's it's too unpredictable. So there it, wouldn't even be a shelf that you would know has all the things that this customer is ordering. Right. It's, it's pretty rare that you can get those serendipitous multi-hits. 
and typically the customer does that anyway and they 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 try to sell packs or bundles of things that are already you know pre shrink wrapped and you know uh you can just shove those things in the same tote anyway so we don't like bringing the the whole shelf just cuz you need a bigger more expensive robot and it's really basically the same story for uh the uh the robot that can grab multiple totes at the same time it's we we looked at the economics of it and what it would take to design that robot and we kind of sketched some things out and our strategy is to build as many very inexpensive robots as possible uh they're very very simple very few moving parts and we just build a ton more of them sure so you have individual robots picking individual boxes Yep. What happens if two robots are trying to grab adjacent boxes or one that's underneath another? Yep. How do you handle so, that type of scenario? Yeah, so that's all part of the multi-robot coordination. We have some very very nice algorithms that are all dedicated to spreading those robots out uh and having them carve their own pick paths through the warehouse uh trying to minimize the conflict uh with with other robots. So you're trying to minimize the conflict while also minimizing the total overall energy spent uh by all the robots and minimizing the the total time spent. So it's it's kind of a fun optimization problem with a lot of knobs to turn. Sure. And how would a robot tell whether another robot is in its way or whether it's a human? So all of the all of our planning is done centrally. So the robots can make a uh, fairly uh, low amount of autonomous fully autonomous decisions in terms of, you know, on the order of 30 seconds worth of autonomous decisions and everything else is planned from a central authority. Uh Okay, rather and, than a swarm. Right, rather than a swarm. Uh there's some very cool swarming algorithms out there, but it's very difficult to get guarantees out of them. Whereas with a centralized planning authority, you know, the the downside is that it's a single point of failure but that really hasn't been much of a downside for us redundant servers and backup databases and you know things are pretty reliable these days so that really just hasn't been a problem uh, and and it really pays off being able to centrally coordinate those things very very tightly sure it's pretty amazing to stand at the crossroads uh in a warehouse and you just see robots zooming by interleaving with each other as the optimizer figures out the uh you know the optimal wait times for everybody it's very very cool to see yeah i imagine so what are some of the challenges that you guys are facing right now sure uh there's a lot of challenges just uh kind of the the more mundane challenges which are uh integrating with a variety of customers uh and so we've had to build a uh kind of a warehouse management system translation layer uh that is a kind of pluggable interface that can really talk to any WMS out there over a variety of protocols and translation systems and, and whatever. WMS is a warehouse management system. Okay. When we deploy it a customer they have some existing uh piece of software that's managing all of their uh their individual pickers and the products and the orders and all that stuff and that's typically called a, a WMS warehouse management system. And so in a typical install we sort of slave onto that system 
So they will drop orders into our system, and then we will send them updates. What we've done, if there's any problems, if there's you know uh, missing items or damaged, you know pickers report damaged items or you know whatever, just streaming all those updates out. And getting into this business, you would think that oh, you know, there's probably a couple key players from Microsoft and maybe Oracle, and you know, there's probably not too many of these things out there. That is not the case. There are just a ton of different WMS providers, and even within different installs, they're all basically unique uh so there's just a huge heterogeneous pool of software out there that we have to interface with so we've had to build this kind of plug-and-play translation system to talk to all of our customer systems sure because uh, otherwise the customer has to kind of define this from scratch define the right. wms from scratch okay. right and, and kind of our whole uh uh ethos is very, very quick turnaround deployments. So there's existing warehouse automation software and hardware out there, but typically it's you know 12 months and a million bucks uh, to, to get it installed. And so we try to have much, much, much faster turnaround, both from the infrastructure required, which we try to make basically nothing. We require some, some uh, fiducial stickers dropped on yourselves, annotating your totes, and then the software uh, setup, we try to make as easy as possible with this kind of pluggable layer. And how do you make it pluggable? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So we by architecting this thing in layers so that we have a library of different uh, connection protocols. Uh, so whether that's FTP or SOAP or REST or direct database or whatever, uh, all trans translates it into an intermediate format. And then we have a number of translators where you can specify, okay, this field in your database corresponds to this field in the intermediate uh, translation layer. So really making it as, as simple and straightforward as possible to just get the data in and out. So that's, that's kind of on the upper end of the system, but there's a lot of challenges in between. One very interesting one is actually networking is super hard. And you would think these days, like, okay, yeah, it's no problem. Uh, get a wireless access point and uh, stream some TCP data or HTTP or whatever. And you just wouldn't believe how challenging networking in a warehouse environment can be. So we've had to learn a whole lot about building robust communication protocols between the robots and the centralized systems. We had to learn a lot of very difficult lessons in how to do that right. Can you tell me one of those lessons? Sure, yeah, definitely. Uh, the biggest lesson is, is don't rely on, basically don't rely on TCP. <laughs> uh, don't rely on anything that requires an answer back. If you have to say something, shout it and shout it over and over and over again. So UDP streams work very, very well and make sure that you have no brittleness in your communication protocols. So if you need to talk to a robot, just constantly stream what the latest thing that it needs to be doing is. Have it stream back its telemetry and what it thinks it's doing right now. Sure. So at uh, any given moment, the centralized system is saying to all robots on the floor what they should all be doing. Right. And these robots are saying back, okay, this is what I'm doing. Right. And so we had started out with a kind of very simple but brittle TCP uh, connection layer where, you know, the centralized system would say, Robot one, can you please do this? I'll wait and we'll wait for a response until I uh, tell you to do something else. And that response would never come back. Uh, so 
TCP is, is really not great for Wi-Fi and really not great for high-performance robotic systems. So this is actually a lesson that was learned uh, by Google uh, in developing their new HTTP3 uh, protocols. I don't know if you've seen anything about that, but uh, coming soon, uh, Google has developed Quick, uh, which is basically a uh, – you can think of it as a, uh, a user land TCP implementation. Uh, but basically, they've re-implemented uh, a full TCP-ish connection protocol uh, on top of UDP. Uh, and they've done that because they get a lot more control and a lot more knobs to turn to make sure that those messages are reliable and very, very efficient. And so we've, we've sort of done the same thing. Unfortunately, there's no good open source quick uh, implementations out there. So we've we've just had to roll our own super custom implementation. Great. Thank you. Closing up, can you tell me what your advice would be for a young roboticist looking to become an entrepreneur? What are your thoughts? Sure. Yeah. I mean, definitely go for it. <laughs> Learn as much as you can. There's a lot of really cool stuff coming out and it's getting easier and easier and easier to build robots. So build some robots, try some things, learn as much as you can, take those Udacity courses. And the biggest thing I would say to do that you don't really see a lot of people doing is try to get a robot that runs every single day. Because getting a robot that runs and you make some cool videos and then it gets you know shoved in a shoebox and put in your closet, that's easy. Having something that runs around your house and does something every single day, you will learn a lot. And try to treat that thing as try to set up an SLA for yourself, a uh, service level agreement, and, and tell yourself that robot's going to run 99.99% of the day. And let's see how see how hard that is. And that's where the really interesting challenges come out because your Wi-Fi is going to go out. Uh, you know, it'll reboot, and your USB webcams won't come back up. Uh, you know, all of the difficult things is 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 you know, where that challenge really lies. But beyond that, I mean, just get out there and learn. There's so much cool stuff happening. Uh, and there's so many amazing opportunities to learn and, and cool Jupyter notebooks and uh, online courses. So, you know, it's a, it's a great time to be learning robotics. Great. Thank you very much. Cool. Thank you so much. And that's the end of today's podcast. Visit us at robohub.org forward slash podcast for lots more content. And if you enjoy listening to our podcasts, why not consider supporting us by becoming a patron? The Robohub podcast is and will, of course, always be free. But as a podcast entirely run by volunteers, we rely on support from our listeners to enable us to keep bringing you the latest from robotics labs and conferences such as ICRAS and IROS. So if you can spare a few dollars a month to support our work, please go to robohub.org forward slash podcast and learn more about becoming a patron. And you can catch us again with a brand new episode in two weeks time. Until then, goodbye. Invia with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.